chapter 3, verse 15, this is the word of the Lord. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Blessed be the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. That was Augustine. If you know anything about his life, you know that describes his restlessness before coming to Christ and his complete satisfaction when he found his identity in Christ. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. It's a true statement. We, every single one of us, mankind was created for worship. And man will always worship, whether unregenerate or regenerate. Our nature, unlike any other created being, is to worship. Sadly, as a result of the Adamic fall, all of us, prior to coming to Christ, worshipped self. We chose to worship the creation rather than the creator. Can you imagine that sort of exchange? Can you imagine the stench in God's nostrils that He created us for His glory and for the purpose of worshiping Him? Almighty God, whose attributes would otherwise never be known had He not created us. And yet we cast Him aside and embraced idolatry in the form of self-worship. And yet, creation All the things do not satisfy. Our hearts are restless. Circumstances don't bring joy. We either get what we longed for and it doesn't satisfy, or we don't get what we want and we're frustrated. That is, until we worship our Creator and then our hearts find rest. We are satisfied. For the first time in our lives, you may remember when you came to Christ, when you repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you bowed the knee, there was that satisfaction, that peace. More than satisfaction, you you found yourself energized, overflowing with joy. It is true of every single one of us that those who are truly converted can't keep their mouth shut. Amen? They gotta tell each other, tell who will ever, whoever will listen about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them. The most hardened souls, the most inward people will suddenly become sanguine in their response, telling whoever will listen. Joy overflowing, contentment, even in the face of injustice. Why? 
because it is His rule and His reign that make a difference. And though not perfect, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away, new things have come. Even though we still have this this flesh, we have the ability to choose the higher things of God, to choose Christ. We have the ability to no longer demand our own rights. We have the ability to forgive, which we never could do before. In seeking to advance His own kingdom and salvation of the lost and the pursuit of holiness, our desires become a distant second to being part of our King's great army. You see, for we have enlisted under the captain of our salvation, and it is Him that we want to please. It is His glory that we are consumed about. We disappear in light of our identity in Christ. And we're able to do this no matter the circumstances. You see, this is the, this is the culmination of understanding our identity in Christ. Worship. This is the very pinnacle of what results in understanding and embracing our identity in Christ. When we started this series, we saw how understanding our identity in Christ results in a change of motivation. We're to keep seeking the things above, not the things below. We're to pursue the things of Christ, the eternal, not the temporal. And with this identity in Christ, it also changes who we are. There's a transformation We no longer desire the selfish sins of the heart, anger, malice, abusive language, lying. But instead, we put on new clothes, the new clothes of compassion, a heart of kindness, forgiving one another, bearing with one another. So not only was there a change in motivation and a change in transformation, but there was reconciliation. And that was the one that I think has hit us the most, right? Being reconciled to our Lord with the great exchange, right? He exchanged His perfection for our sin. Our our judgment He took upon His shoulders and mercy was extended to us. And because we are reconciled, Romans 5, we have peace with Him, therefore what? We have peace with others. We don't have to work towards reconciliation. If I could just be real frank in some of these conversations, there is no need for racial reconciliation. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are automatically reconciled with other believers. Period. Why? Because the greatest reconciliation has already taken place. Do you realize the Grand Canyon, the spiritual chasm that was between us and our Creator? And it has been bridged by the cross. How can we not bridge just a little stepping stone with someone else? For as we learned last week, it was our sins that nailed him to the cross. And yet he forgave. So motivation is changed. Transformation is brought about. Reconciliation is assured. And the pinnacle of our identity in Christ is adoration. It is worship. That's the title of our sermon, Adoration of Christ. Our timeless truth is this, 
The church pursues unity by practicing her identity. And let me say that again. The church pursues unity by practicing her identity. And what I want to point out today is that that worship is not something we have to gin up, that we have to get the, the, the worship team just right with your favorite songs and slow down here and speed up there. It's not something I have to to do in a theatrical way to produce an emotional response. It's not something we gather to do and it only happens here. But worship is the natural result of practicing our identity. Practicing our identity. And we'll talk more about that. Let's pray and we'll dive right in. Gracious Father, we come to you as a body of believers our hearts knit together by the power of the Holy Spirit, reconciled to one another because we are reconciled in Christ. As a result of not only His perfection, His ontology, but also His work on the cross. Father, may we understand that our life is wrapped up in His now. We live in Him The old man is dead. It is six feet under. And though we have not attained glorification yet, we are saved assuredly. And so therefore we are called to practice our identity. We're to practice our identity in motivation, in transformation, in reconciliation, and yes, most of all, in adoration, in worship. And so whether we gather together as a body of Christ in obedience to worship or we are spread out throughout the week, may we truly respond like who we are. May we truly not only understand our identity, but actively practice it through worship. Bless our time, Lord. Transform us put us into use, and do a mighty work. Do something in this body of believers that we cannot do by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the strengthening by your word. Use us mightily in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been talking about chapter 3, and we talked about the build-up to it. We we dipped back into chapter 2 a little bit that there was worldly philosophy and ideologies that had infiltrated the church at Colossae. It was worldliness, but it was creating division. It had the appearance of wisdom, but it was nothing but self-made religion that cannot save. It was adding to the work of the cross. It had a Jewish syncretistic flair to it that divided between Jew and Greek. And if you wanted to be special, you needed to do this and eat this and celebrate this day. And there's this warning that Paul shoots across the bow in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. We cannot sanitize this right here. You have to realize that the people he is talking about are sitting in the congregation. 
They're well-known teachers. They're beloved teachers. They're leaders of small groups. And Paul is willing to bring the full firepower to bear because these worldly ideologies are an assault on the gospel. And words have consequences. Words have meaning. And people are being led astray to a different gospel. Something that sounds good, feels good, reminds them of what it used to be like with this sort of Jewish flavor and Jewish tradition. But it's nothing more than the traditions of men. And he goes so far as to say that it's empty deception. And then in chapter 3 he says, don't lie to one another. Because these are lies. Let me be really, really clear. Faithful preachers with PhDs who've written great books can fall into lying to the bride of Christ. They can add to the sufficiency and perspicuity of Scripture because it feels good, because it fits with the culture, because it gains them more followers. I don't know the motivations. Jude and 2 Peter are pretty clear about them. They say false teachers are not stupid because the Bible is so clearly understandable. But the fact is, is that Paul probably knew some of these people and he's willing to call them out. Why? Friends or not, don't you dare assault the gospel. Don't you dare bring your worldly philosophical baggage and try to supplant the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've had so many friends of mine saying, gee, Rod, aren't you kind of overreacting on some of this stuff? Don't you, don't you just think good men can disagree on this? There's a lot we can disagree on. I mean, there's a whole lot. And I love a good debate. But when you start to undermine the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness, when you start to bring division into the body, when you start to elevate ethnicity, socioeconomic, whatever else identities above or equivalent to identity in Christ, gloves are off. I'm telling you, I'm begging pastors. I was on Iron Sharpens Iron this week with Chris Arnzen. I'm begging pastors to step up to the plate. People's souls are at stake. We know from reading uh, the book of Hebrews, drifting has a destination. I could go through, I'm not going to do it, but I could go through name after name after name over the last 10 years of formerly faithful pastors who started dabbling in worldly philosophy, and it was only a matter of time before they apostatized. And all along the way, I can show you article after article. Oh, you're overreacting. Oh, you're overreacting. Oh, show grace. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And guess what? Today, they're no longer Christians. Not my words, theirs. Drifting has a destination. And as teachers, James 3, 1, we're going to be held to a higher account. My concern is not fighting Twitter. My concern is not trying to make every pastor agree with this. My concern right now in the little mission field I have is helping pastors be bold. what we signed up for. Look at Colossians 2.13. We just heard about philosophy and empty deception. Listen to the purity of the gospel just five verses later. When you were dead in your transgressions 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There's about four tenets of CRT there that it just completely obliterates. We are forgiven. There is no judgment against us. The certificate of debt is canceled out. It is nailed to the cross. There is no more uncircumcision and circumcision. We've been spiritually circumcised of the heart. And so we talked about these worldly philosophies. Specifically, we talked about how these ideas infiltrating the church, whether it be critical race theory, theory, intersectionality, social justice, I'm even going to throw egalitarianism in there. All of it's under the concept of wokeness, it seems to be. And these are not built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're adding to the gospel. In some sense, they're adding to and taking away. Because in this particular case, they're saying the cross is not enough. And at the same time, they almost embrace a licentiousness. Uh, uh, Sin is not that serious. It's like Satan's playing both ends of the game. It has become the new moralism. But in fact, it is nothing more, I'm not being harsh here, it is an atheistic, socialistic, and Marxist ideology. How do we know this? It is Marxism that sees the world divided between the oppressed and the oppressors. That's the commonality through all this. All of this. Even, even my friends who say, yeah, I don't believe in this CRT. I don't believe in this wokeness. Read their articles. Read their social media. It's all about oppress, oppressors and oppressed. Victims. Uh, doing justice. And the gospel keeps being muted over and over again. Forgiveness is starting to disappear over and over again. Penance is taking its place. It is the new moralism. A new moralism where our our identity is not found in him and our security is not found in his atoning work. But this is not something that some pastors or John MacArthur are overreacting on. This is nothing new. You may not realize it, but Karl Marx and Charles Spurgeon were contemporaries. And not just contemporaries, they lived in the same city at the same time. Larry Taunton writes, While Marx was preaching salvation through bloody revolution, Spurgeon, on the other side of the city, was preaching salvation through the blood and grace of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon was not oblivious to this philosophy because it had started to infiltrate the church. No one's talking about this. Everyone loves to quote Spurgeon, loves to quote old dead guys, loves to distance themselves from Marx. But I'm telling you, the parallels are scary. So scary that Spurgeon felt like he needed to hit it head on in April of 1889. Preaching out of Isaiah 66, I want to read you a portion of his sermon. Now, I'll never be able to do it like Spurgeon because apparently he had this 
magnificent, booming voice. You couldn't get even into his pastor's college unless you had a, a certain circumference of a chest that was big enough because there was no amplification. But imagine, if you will, with some of the old English, imagine what he's saying in light of Marxist ideology. For many a year, by the grand old truths of the gospel, sinners were converted and saints were edified and the world was made to know that there is a God in Israel. But these are too antiquated for the present cultured race of superior beings. They are going to regenerate the world by democratic socialism and set up a kingdom for Christ without the new birth or the pardon of sin. Truly, the Lord has not taken away the 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. This latter-day gospel is not the gospel by which we are saved. To me, it seems a tangle of ever-changing dreams. It is, by the confession of its inventors, the outcome of the period, the monstrous birth of a boasted progress. The scum from the cauldron of conceit. It has not been given by the infallible revelation of God. It does not pretend to have been. It is not divine. It has no inspired scripture at its back. It is, when it touches the cross, an enemy. When it speaks of him who died thereon, it is a deceitful friend. Many are the sneers at the truth of substitution. It is irate at the mention of the precious blood. Many a pulpit where Christ was once lifted high in all the glory of his atoning death is now profaned by those who laugh at justification by faith. In fact, men are not now to be saved by faith, but by doubt. Those who love the church of God feel heavy at heart because the teachers of these people cause them to err. Even from a national point of view, men of foresight see cause for great concern. April 1889. The only difference there is he started to see even the pulpits cast away justification by faith. We haven't seen that yet in specificity, but we're seeing it in practicality because your sins must be atoned for through becoming an anti-racist. Whether you ever partook willfully in racism, you are guilty and you must do eternal penance. You must feel the white guilt. Strong words. Larry Taunton also writes, he makes this connection. He says, today the battle continues, but the battlefield has expanded to the entire world. Marxism morphs as it goes, disguising itself until it reaches our own time in the sheep's clothing of racial equality and so-called social justice. Look, the problem here is, people don't realize this, but the problem here is trying to expect culture, unregenerate culture, to act like believers. Trying to change society with pagans. Let's just be honest. 
Let's be the first ones to admit that there are problems in society. That there is racism in society. That there is murder, abusive speech. There is all these kind of things. There is under, under the table deals. There's corruption. You only have to watch the news. We all agree with that. Why then are we so shocked when pagans act like pagans? You want to change culture? You do it one soul at a time. And, and it will change. Joy and I saw in the late 80s and the early 90s, the little city of Denton changed dramatically through a revival that was going on there. But it wasn't by changing culture or by changing laws or by marching or holding fists in the air. It was one student at a time getting saved, studying their Bible, witnessing to another, walking away from immoral relationships. And you could walk into any coffee shop there and see people witnessing to one another, studying their Bibles. And you saw people show up on Sunday morning. And the whole flavor of the town changed. And that was 25, 30 years ago. It's, it's flipped back again. But what would we expect? Even, even Spurgeon saw this. He said, to attempt national regeneration without personal regeneration is to dream of erecting a house without separate bricks. Here's my point. Here's what I want to tell pastors. Do you believe in the gospel? Do you believe it saves do you believe it saves people not only from eternal damnation, but it saves people from their former lives? If you do, and this is the tool that does heart surgery, why would you use anything else? God doesn't need your help. Now, I'm all for justice. Biblical justice. Blind justice. I am passionate about helping people climb out of a hole. You know that if you've been to my house. You know my background in economics. But I am not passionate about using worldly ideologies to further enable and engender sin and produce division in the body. And that's exactly what's going on. We'll review next week some of the things we did, but we ended talking about how the hallmark of Christianity is reconciliation. We talked about, you know, put off the old man. Take off those old clothes and put on a heart of compassion. And, and do you remember that, that picture and that final overcoat, that cashmere wool coat that brought, up, brought the whole ensemble together was love. We're going to see this flesh itself out today. Let me just tell you briefly where we're going. Practicing our identity is going to show itself in three commands. Let the peace of Christ rule with gratitude. This is talking about within the body of Christ. Those who are saved, how do we practice our identity? Let the peace of Christ rule with gratitude. Let the word of Christ dwell with gratitude. And let all be done in the name of Christ with gratitude. Obviously, you see gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Verse 15, and be thankful. Verse 16, Singing with thankfulness. 17, giving thanks through him to God the Father. All of these actions are to be done with an attitude of gratitude. Thankfulness is what fuels our worship. You ever think about that? Thankfulness. 
Worship. Worship in uh, the, the word worship is made up of two words. It's pros cuneo. Pros, it means forward to kiss, to kiss forward. And, and how would you worship someone in the ancient Near East? How would you show gratitude, show homage? You would, you would bow low to the ground, face to the ground, and you would blow kisses forward. It, it is to honor someone who is greater than you, who has shown you mercy that you did not deserve. That's what worship is. So we're going to look at this. If I knew nothing else about the whole wokeness movement, I would say it does not have an aroma of thankfulness. It has the stench of power dynamics. I deserve more. You've done me wrong. I've done you wrong. We need to switch places. All these power dynamics, this demand for, we keep using hearing this word justice, but it has adjectives in front of, us, in front of it which negate the very word justice. Anytime you put an adjective in front of justice other than blind, you're negating justice. But with all that said, we don't want justice, do we? We don't want fairness. Justice was satisfied at the cross. I don't want what is due me. We need to be very careful about saying that from a Christian perspective. Similarity, similarly, Carrying guilt that was paid for on the cross is to spit upon Christ's work. We have to remember, again, this is an, comes out of atheism. Marx himself was not only atheistic, anti-Semitic, even though he was Jewish, but he was a guy who remained purposefully unemployed. He was lazy. You heard Daryl say that last week. His mother was quoted as saying, I wish Carl would acquire some capital instead of just talking about it. You have to realize, this man had no character, thus the philosophy is going to be to get what I don't deserve and not get what I do deserve. So let's look at the first one, let the peace of Christ rule. It actually starts with, and let the peace of Christ rule, so it's drawn back upon that love section. And it's a very interesting imperative Peace is an overused word. We use it a lot. Sometimes we use it to disguise our own sin, right? I have a, I have a real peace about this. <laughs> like, I just threw down the peace card. You can't argue with me. That's not what this is talking about here. Now, to be fair, there is, as I talked about earlier, a, a divine peace, that we are at peace with our Lord. And there's, a, there's a, a, a contentment. But that's not what this is talking about here. What this is talking about, the word is actually... Um, descriptive of an umpire when it talks about rule. An umpire in a game. Alright, so I'm not, I'm not a huge uh, baseball fan, but an umpire stands behind the plate, and, and what does he do when the ball is outside the strike zone? What's the motion? Give it to me. It's one of these, right? Okay? Ball not inside the strike zone. Ball, he's ruling there is no box there. He sees it. We trust him, but he is the arbiter of that. He rules over it, and he rules according to what he sees by his standard. The peace of Christ ruling in the body is that we are having the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. So just to use an example, someone throws a zinger at you to hurt you. Letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, even though that thing was coming in the strike zone, you know what you do? Ball. I don't have to respond to that. I'm going to choose to overlook an offense. 
I'm going to choose to forgive as I have been forgiven. I'm going to choose to engage. I'm going to, I may walk up on the mound and talk to the guy a little bit. And, hey, can I, can I say that that's not very Christ-like what you did? But I don't have to pull out my Louisville slugger and go to town. That's what it means to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You have the ability to love like Christ loves you. That's amazing. Forgiveness. It is the very cornerstone of our faith. It is so otherworldly. Tell me of another world religion that forgives. And the way we are able to forgive is because we've been forgiven. Not because we turn a blind eye or a deaf ear, but because those sins have been paid for. I want to give you an example of how this Marxism plays itself out in Christianese. This is a well-known pastor. I'm not going to tell you his name, but uh, he was very solid. We used to carry his books in the, in the bookstore back there. And he's writing on forgiveness here. He's tweeting on forgiveness. He retweets this. Do not make forgiveness an imperative burden to force a romanticized outcome of peace, especially on the abused and the oppressed. All you'll do is guilt trip already wounded people into a false truce. That is not the gospel. Don't you dare instruct one of your sheep that they should forgive someone who's done them wrong because it's not going to make them feel good. That's what he's saying. Now, I'm not saying we put sheep in a situation to be continually abused. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying if you hurt someone else over here and you genuinely ask for forgiveness, that believer is obliged to forgive. Why? Because he's been forgiven. This is paganism out of the mouth of a pastor. This is another one he tweeted just a couple days before that. Toxic people will make you feel like you're holding a grudge when you're holding a boundary. Oh, let's just throw a little sociology in there. I'm not going to call it a grudge. I'm going to call it a boundary, and you can't come near me because I need some mental health. Come on. What did Christ say? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that was with pagans. Guys, this is not some little side doctrine, not some preference. This is undermining the entire gospel. Think about this practically. Think about this. You know, you look around here at this church. What you win them with, you keep them with. If I am bringing you and the elders are bringing you into membership, nursing a grudge, telling you you don't have to forgive, telling you that you're either better or worse than the person next to you, based upon the melanin count in your skin... How long is this sweet one body of Christ going to last? It's a nuclear bomb waiting to go off. And churches are opening their doors and inviting it in. They're preaching on this stuff. The Gospel Coalition is one of the greatest offenders. They continually platform people that are preaching socialism, basically. You cannot withhold forgiveness because Christ has forgiven you. Paul makes it clear we are to pursue the things, Romans 14, which make for peace and the building up of one another. 
Christ says it himself in John 14. He says, peace I live with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Practicing our identity fueled by gratitude means that we can let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And we can take what the world would call offenses, oppression, and we can even choose to say, Ball, I don't, I, don't, I don't need to take offense at that. I can forgive as I've been forgiven. This is our worship. This is our spiritual service of worship, Romans 12 says. I want you to notice one other thing before we go to the second point. Look at verse 15. To which indeed you were called in one body. There's, there's one calling in the New Testament. You've heard him mention it. It's not a calling to the pastorate, a calling to ministry, or a calling to be a missionary. There's one calling. It's a call to salvation. It's a call to follow Christ. It is a call to a new identity in Christ. Old man is dead. The new man is here. And with that new, new identity, this calling into one body where there is neither Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, nor free man, nor barbarian, nor Scythian, okay? All of this is able to come together and we are able, as the called, to live and work together. Isn't that great? We, we, we are the grateful called. Sounds like a 60s rock band. And we call them the grateful alive instead of the grateful dead, right? That's what we are. We are the grateful alive. We're not going to have a skeleton on the pulpit there, you know. This, 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 is, this is what we're not only able to do, it's what we're compelled to do. Did you ever realize that? The guy who discipled me used to say that, this, that, that Christians, Christians don't obey because they must, but because they must. Isn't that rich? It's because of our new identity. Paul in Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one. There's that one body. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new Man and the church of Jesus Christ is not schizophrenic. Okay? What's our identity? It's not our ethnicity, it's not our background, it's not being oppressed, it's not being the oppressor. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And the glue that holds us together is love. And what causes us to worship is gratitude. Look at the second one. Let the word of Christ dwell with gratitude. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with faithfulness, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now that, that's a mouthful, but let me break it down real quickly. That word of Christ is only used one other place in the New Testament, and it's in, want to guess what book? Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, therefore leaving the elementary word of Christ let us press on towards maturity. The word of Christ is the word of God. It is the gospel. It is that which proclaims Christ. 
How do we practice our identity? How do we pursue unity in the body? We let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. We let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts so we're not fighting, we're overlooking offenses, we're forgiving one another. But then we also let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. We do that, right? And it says through teaching and admonishment, that's formatively and correctively. But there's something very interesting. Did you notice the format of this teaching and admonishment? What does it say? Look at it again. Psalms? Hymns? Spiritual songs? What he's saying here is through the body of Christ raising their voices to heaven, singing theologically rich music and songs, we're not only edified, but we are unified. How do you know that? Because when we sing together, our hearts have to be together, right? You can't do it very long. That's why in some churches you hear this. They're not really singing. Christians sing. Christians sing and they sing loud. Practicing our identity is to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. We sing it loud. There's a, there's a really interesting story. Tertullian was early church father and apologist, and he describes um, what it was like at a love feast. He said, And after water for the hands and lights have been brought in, each is invited to sing to God in the presence of others from his own heart. So next time you're a small group and you share a meal together, look over your small group leader, Aaron, and say, Aaron, why don't you just bust a tune here for us? But, no, but you can imagine, seriously. Lights are brought in. It's at night. You're sharing a meal together with the body of Christ. You're looking across the table. There's a barbarian. Y'all don't even hardly communicate very well with language. There's a rabbi. You're a Greek. You're feeding him shrimp, and he's gladly taking it. You're starting to talk about the sermon. You share a meal together, the Lord's table. And someone starts to sing. Because they can't help it. They start to sing about the riches of Christ's glory. The greatness of his sacrifice. They start to sing something like a come thou fount. All right? Come thou fount of every blessing. I mean, imagine it was like the first century. Someone maybe starts to sing scripture. And then someone maybe responds with, with a chant or an antiphonal verse. And it goes back and forth. Someone remembers a psalm. Maybe they put it to their own tune. And the body of Christ is edified and unified. Because you either think they're crazy and you're going to get out of there, or their hearts have been tuned to feel thy grace. It is through songs that the word of Christ teaches the body, corrects the body, and produces unity in the body. Finally, let all be done in the name, excuse me, in the name of Christ with gratitude. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, 
do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. That just sounds like Hebrews, doesn't it? He is our high priest. He is our mediator to whom we give thanks through Him to God the Father. If the peace of Christ is to rule in our hearts, and the Word of Christ is to dwell among us in the body, then the result of all that sweet unity is that everything we do in word or in deed brings glory to Christ. Everything. That's Colossians 3.23. That means from stacking of the chairs to sweeping of the floor to making the coffee to teaching the equipping hour to caring for babies to changing dirty diapers to opening up your home to calling someone and praying with them over the phone, to sharing a verse, to reaching out to your neighbor and sharing the gospel, all of it is a sacrifice of worship. All of it. And guess what? When our lives are spent, when our lives are expended in this kind of self-sacrificial worship, in everything that we do. You know, the Puritans saw no difference between a doctor and a ditch digger because the activity they did both was worship to God. There was no sacred and secular. When all of that is done for God's glory, when our lives are expended and we breathe our last, are we going to regret that we didn't do more for ourselves? or demand more for ourselves, or spend more money on ourselves? No. Because our identity in Christ is transformational. The guy who discipled me used to say, our job is to make Jesus look good. To a lost and dying world, to make Jesus look good. We are ambassadors who herald the truth, make disciple-making disciples, and we do it in close quarters. Amen? Okay? We give up our rights. We understand the greatness of our salvation and overlook an offense. And I, I'd like to describe it this way. What we have in the church with a new identity in Christ is a new game on a new field with a new umpire, a new song in our mouth, and a new attitude. And guess what? Worldliness has no place in this stadium. Amen?